0: Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Episode 3.6, Computer World. Previously, we've waded neck deep through a stream of 8-bit microcomputers, mostly affordable keyboard systems with limited audio and video capabilities and onboard basic that took over the world in the early 80s. In 1981, Kraftwerk released its album, Computer World. 8-bit micros entrenched themselves in schools and homes and then stuck around, even though by the end of the decade they were no longer as exciting. If you could afford the price, there were better, faster, more powerful 16-bit systems out there, and many of them were suitable for games. Not the IBM 5150, though. I've already told you how it was introduced in August 1981, without saying the price. Well, it was $1,500. For the money that could buy you two 3-8-bit systems, you got a computer built around a 16-bit Intel 8088 processor, with only 16-64 to 64 kilobytes of memory. This is still happening when RAM costs an arm and a leg. For graphics, your choice was between a monochrome text-mode-only adapter that worked exclusively with the proprietary IBM display, or the color graphics adapter, CGA, in its cyan and magenta glory. I told you about that one last time. The primary way to get a nice palette with CGA was to trigger artifact colors. For sound, you got a one-bit, one-channel beeper. To illustrate how dire gaming on a stock IBM PC was, I'm going to hold a little demonstration. Early in 1987, Konami released the Contra Arcade Cabinet, an 80s sci-fi action movie The Game. Run forward through scrolling levels, shoot things, don't get hit, don't die. We'll get to how these games appeared later, but for now let's just listen to a snippet of the original Arcade Contra, as seen on YouTube channel World of Long Plays, played by user Tsunao. Specifically, this is from the game's second stage. classic. The sound hardware is slightly unusual in that while the system board was jammer-compatible, stereo sound was available only if you connected your cabinet speakers through an additional plug. Of course, the far more famous and the most widely played version of Contra was the NES port released in 88. Here is what it sounds like, as seen on World of Longplays, played by Ravenlord. (laughs) I'm <laughs> sorry. The sounds are downgrade, and the visuals took a similar hit. There are fewer colors on the screen, and you see occasional sprite flicker. Due to the popularity of MSX systems, Konami also had an MSX2 port made. That one was almost a different game, with many changes and no scrolling in levels, but the sound and music remain, so here's a clipping from a World of long plays recording, played by Valis77. Again, the arcade original is unsurpassed, but the changes to the audio are different from what NES users heard. Since NES was not selling well in Europe and just not being sold in some countries yet, and the continent was flooded with 8-bit micros, Konami also outsourced ports to those systems, but under a different title. This is how the ZX Spectrum got a game called Gryzor. This is, by the way, the reason I'm using Stage 2 recordings. Its music is the only tune the specky version got. Let's hear what this Gryzor, as played by Mad Matty for World of Longplays, sounds like. <laughs> You can hear that it's struggling with the tune. It's more like someone is whistling the theme. The graphics have a similar look. Most of the objects are simply yellow with black outlines and details. It's pretty common with Spectrum games. Areas where things are supposed to be moving a lot are assigned one color palette so that you couldn't see the huge blocks moving around. Now that you know the bigger picture, we can shift our attention to the version for the IBM PC. In spite of some third-party expansions for the system being available and the existence of improved clones, the Contra for the IBM PC was clearly programmed with the specs of the original 5150 in mind. Those were the days when publishers still had to count on players having stock system hardware. So, let's hear it played on The Video Games Museum YouTube channel. be hard to believe, but it looks worse than it sounds. Also, it is difficult to find footage of this port without someone talking, swearing or laughing over it, like in this attempt by Let's Play a Psychedelic Eyeball to have a go at the game. Oh, my God. <laughs> it does have that effect on people. No matter which of the two CGA palettes you pick from, it looks bad, the scrolling is choppy, the controls are not responsive, and as you may have noticed, there was no music. At least the Amstrad CPC port of Contra offered a choice between playing with either sound effects or music, but the PC port offers no hope. Or how about this, Alley Cat, a simpler game where you guide a cat through strangers' apartments to impress a lady cat. One of the apartments has a fish tank and you need to dive into it to collect tasty fishies, avoiding electric eels and drowning. Here's what a fish tank adventure sounds like on the game's native platform, the Atari 800, as played on the Atari Vintage Players YouTube channel. You can hear both the music and the bubbles from the cat paddling, right? Well, here's the same on the IBM 5150 from La Masmorra Abandon YouTube channel. The less is said about the sound effect, the better. And as for the music, all we had was a rhythmical sequence of clicks. That's why there could be music. Clicks don't require much processing power. With only one audio channel, and very limited at that, mixing and passing through it all the different frequencies you'd want for a tune would have to be carried out by the main processor. And in action games, it already had plenty on its plate. Gameplay logic, inputs, graphics... And they all suffered together. In many DOS games, you could not hear a recognizable tune outside of the title screen, where nothing was happening and all the power could be channeled into the sound. Unfortunately, the PC has become the dominant microcomputer platform of today, and now when people look up early 80s computer games, they're most likely to run into their DOS versions that look bad and sound barely at all. Unless you go digging into the long-gone micro-brands, you will get the impression that computer games of the era had abysmal presentation and people liked it. But no, it's just the 5150, and whenever titles developed for the PC got ported to other systems without at least some graphical improvements, they were deservedly mocked in contemporary reviews. In spite of its game issues, the IBM 5150 was appealing to serious people. The computer offered high-resolution monochrome graphics for charts and the coveted 80-column text mode, just like mainframe terminals. Plus, it was IBM's first affordable home computer. You gotta have an IBM. Sales figures were good, not as explosive as the Commodore 64 at its peak would be, but good and steady. IBM clones started to appear, then fully compatible clones, and even entirely legal fully compatible clones. We covered that in episode 2.7. Compaq became the fastest-growing company in America, the title only a few years earlier held by video game giant Atari. In 1984, IBM introduced a new model, the PC-AT, the 5170, with the enhanced graphics adapter that could go up to 16 colors with the right display. That one got cloned too. Gradually, by the mid-80s, this mass of IBM-adjacent computers did develop into a widespread platform game developers could consider. Although, they had a new headache now. Games needed to be programmed to support popular expansions, and sometimes clones had different graphics cards, so often in startup, players would see a menu asking to pick your graphics adapter. The common options were IBM's own CGA and EGA, a Hercules expansion card and a Tandy graphics adapter. The IBM 5150 did not enjoy the honor of being the only 16-bit micro for long. Or ever. Texas Instruments beat IBM to its announcement by a couple of years with the TI-99-4. In 79, for a bit over $1,000, it offered a display customized to dodge FCC regulations TI's own 16-bit processor, and early versions of the graphics and sound chips we've met in the ColecoVision. Also, this may have been the first micro to take software on cartridges. At a glance, it appears good, but the 16-bit processor was directly connected to a laughably tiny memory bank, and the rest of the system was 8-bit, so why did they even bother? The keyboard felt like a calculator keyboard, because it basically was one, Texas Instruments also made the classic blunder of not supporting or encouraging third-party software developers intent on supplying and getting paid for all the programs itself. Yeah, we know how that goes. The TI-99-4 was dead. In 81, just a couple of months before the IBM 5150 announcement, Texas Instruments tried again with the TI-99-4A. It had a nicer keyboard, a slightly improved graphics chip, and the price got cut in half. The catch was that various peripheral hardware was overpriced, and TI still offered third-party developers no real support. The new model did start selling well at $500, millions would be out there, and it is one of the game platforms of the period. I can see why some at TI would start thinking of leaving this clown show and founding Compaq, though. Then Texas Instruments made a big mistake. It tried to move in on Commodore's turf and compete with its VIC-20 by slashing the price of the TI-99. You know, the $300 computer with no sprite support or real graphics? They picked a fight with that instead of the comparable and comparably priced Atari 400. Now, remember that less than 10 years before, TI had already ruined or nearly ruined many calculator manufacturers by a tidal wave of cheap mass-produced calculators, and Commodore had been a victim of it. Jack Tramiel would not let it fly a second time. This was personal. Price war it is. The resulting contest in who could offer their hardware cheaper ended in TI selling its computer for $99 instead of $500 at loss. People were buying, I mean, a computer for $100 is great, but Texas Instruments kept growing poorer with each sale. Further plans for TI Micros were shelved, and in the second half of the 80s, Texas Instruments was no longer in the home computer business. The strangest spin-off of this story is that in 82, Japanese electronics company Matsushita, future Panasonic, put together a near-perfect clone of the TI system, which was then released by Tommy, the same toy company that was still making electromechanical handhelds. The Tommy Pewter was introduced as a computer for children and sold in toy stores. It had a basic and a drawing program you could use to make sprites. Shame about the keyboard, though. It was chiclet that's a rubber mat with extruded keys thrown over a membrane. Looks like a real keyboard. Feels like crap. In Japan, the Pewter was somewhat successful as a computer. A console variant, Pewter Jr. was a dud with next to no games and had the worst luck releasing the same month as the Famicom and the SG-1000. Outside Japan, where the Pewter was marketed as the Tutor, it didn't get anywhere at all. But still, technically, Tommy also released a 16-bit console years before both Sega and Nintendo. Since we've hopped over to Japan already, we're perfectly positioned to watch NEC announce its PC-9801, or the PC-98 for short, in the autumn of 82. It came with quite a price tag, $3,000. For the money, you got a remake of NEC's N5200 from 1981, another product of Next many departments coming up with and releasing their own computers. The N5200 used Next's own Intel 8086 compatible processor, and Next graphical chip called... Uh, it had to be the Greek alphabet. The chip called MuPD7220. Quite a mouthful, but the chip earned it. A native Japanese design, it had been developed to draw lines, curves, and everything else you needed for a kanji character generator. It could draw kanji nice and fast and in high resolution, but as a side effect, it could do other graphics too, and was powerful enough to let the image on the screen scroll smoothly. The 7220 was such a big deal, Intel licensed it and produced a copy. In the PC-98, NEC used two 7220s, one dedicated to text, and the other to all other graphics. This led the computer put out fancy visuals in 16 colors out of a palette of 4000 at the resolution of 640 by 400 pixels. Most other systems of the day, if they could even reach that resolution, had to stick to four colors or go monochrome. Unfortunately, the sound was limited to a simple beeper, so while powerful, the PC98 was not exactly a people's gaming machine. Especially for $3,000. But later models in the line kept getting even better graphics hardware, mouse support in addition to light pen input, the 7220 already processed, and a few years later Next stuck proper sound synthesizers into the system. It got cheaper too, and with 8-bit computers growing obsolete, the PC-98 emerged as one of the most popular Japanese gaming computers of the late 80s. At a glance, the machines looked and worked like the IBM PC compatibles, but some internals were different, and this distinct line of computers was discontinued only in the 21st century. Meanwhile, in the United States, Apple launched its Apple Lisa in 83. It was named after the daughter of Steve Jobs and Kristen and Brennan, the would-be illustrator of the Taipan book from last time. Unluckily for Lisa, the computer, Steve Jobs was involved in its development far beyond the name. He had seen the Xerox Alto and wanted Apple to make something like it. In 79, he arranged for his engineers a visit to Xerox Park, where Xerox showed them how mouse-driven graphical user interface worked in exchange for some worthless paper – Apple stock. With this, the project to slightly upgrade the Apple II morphed into the project to create a consumer version of a $32,000 smart terminal. But this time, the dividing line between the 70s and the 80s was not a good moment to develop a computer. Memory cost a lot, and the new M68000 processor the team had picked was still raw and unfinished. And then, as the computer was being finalized, they got to watch chip prices drop, and the real M68000 being far better than the early revision the Lisa had been built around, and new graphical units, like the 7220, whooshed over Apple's head, leaving no chance of catching up. When it was released, the Lisa cost $10,000, and the price tag was the only impressive thing about it. Well, that and how much Apple had spent on development. As Lisa development stalled in 81 and its future failure became suspected, Steve Jobs was removed from the project because he'd gotten them into this mess in the first place and everyone was sick of him. To prop up his ego, Jobs latched onto a different project, run by Jeff Raskin. Raskin had joined Apple as a great technical writer, but starting in 79 he'd been trying to develop a new microcomputer he called a Macintosh, also a kind of Apple. It would be user-friendly, but without that mouse-driven desktop metaphor graphical interface crap. Just you, the keyboard, and the computer that guessed what you wanted to do and made it easier. And then, in 82, Steve Jobs came and said that all the work Jeff had done was very nice, but the Macintosh was now being turned into a cheaper version of the Lisa. Jeff Reskin quit. But as development was being rerouted into a new direction, Steve Jobs kept having lunches with a certain employee of Atari, Alan Curtis Kay, who had led the creation of the Xerox interface Jobs was ripping off. Kay would join Apple soon after the launch of the Macintosh. The sales of the original Macintosh opened in January 84 after a Super Bowl commercial directed by Ridley Scott, with great success. It was an easy-to-use computer, finally appealing not only to kids or hobbyists, but to simple consumers who wanted an approachable product. They started buying their Macs, and in the first months, the sales figures were good. Not Commodore 64 good, but good enough for Apple. So it placed a massive manufacturing order to meet the demand. Then Apple ran out of simple consumers, and the sales dropped so hard that by the end of its launch year, Macintosh sales amounted to less than one-fifth of Apple's annual take. What most people really wanted, what they were buying, was the Apple IIe. It did more and cost less, exactly as the Apple slogan at the time promised. But putting that aside, was the Macintosh any good for games? Well, we know of at least one game it was perfect for, Brody Lockard's Shanghai. It was perfect because the horizontal resolution of the Mac's display was 512 pixels, exactly the same as of Plato 4. Vertically, the Macintosh did not quite measure up, only 342 pixels. Also, the display was small even by the 80s standards, and worst of all, it was monochrome. I mean, black and white was how Xerox had done it in the 70s, and it was great for showing texts and charts and pie charts, But at a time when 8-bit computers competed who could have the most color on the screen, the Mac looked a bit bland. When it comes to sound, though, the Macintosh offered a rare feature for the time. In addition to a simple square wave generator, it had the capability to play sound samples through pulse code modulation. Not quite with the quality of CD audio, but it was nice. PCM is what everyone is going to have by the end of the 80s, and we're still using it today. So that's a point in Mac's favor. And we'll take that point away for having only one floppy disk drive. How am I supposed to copy uh, backup my games? At the heart of the Macintosh, there was the fabled Motorola 68000 running at 8 MHz. Unfortunately, the developers of the system prioritized ease of use and the new, decade old, mouse driven graphical interface over raw performance. But it's a microcomputer, you can upgrade it with expansions right nope steve jobs strikes again he insisted that the Macintosh ship as a closed system there would be no red book explaining how it worked no easy access to the internals you couldn't even swap out the display for something larger jobs was a firm believer in the eternal silicon valley dream of fixing bad engineering with good software well okay you could get more memory but you had to go to apple directly for this the one thing mitigating the issue was that just like when they had negotiated with Sony behind Jobs' back, Apple engineers managed to sneak in secretary for extra hardware behind Jobs' back, and there were third-party expansions for the Macintosh. Just don't tell Steve about this. In spite of its flaws and thanks to its newfangled interface, the Mac became the home platform for a number of games that could do with mostly static, high-resolution black-and-white graphics and simple menus, wargames and wargame-adjacent titles, puzzles and graphical adventure games. No arcade ports here, but plenty of something to give you a nice brain burn. In the early 80s, there was another party trying to launch some kind of graphical user interface project but for IBM compatibles – Microsoft. Apple was doing it, and other companies were doing it in professional and expensive workstations for industrial designers. Microsoft was trying to cobble something together on its own, but in 83 it also hired a guy from Xerox PARC, Scott McGregor. McGregor was responsible for the Windows part of the Xerox Star interface. Just like a mainframe running multiple programs for different users, a single desktop unit could run multiple programs for one user and put them all in different portions of the same screen. It kind of looked nice and was potentially useful once it stopped being so horrendously slow. Most importantly, Apple didn't have it yet. The original Windows operating system was presented to the public late in 83 and released only in 85. It had one built-in game, Reversi, a century-old design at that point. And that's when we can mostly stop talking about Windows until Microsoft releases the first good one, 3.1, in the early 90s. The very first sees were slow resource hogs running on top of DOS and didn't see many exclusive games. If anything, in the late 80s and early 90s, many game developers tried to avoid Microsoft operating systems altogether. Games would come with a program to create a special boot disk, you'd restart the computer with a floppy in the drive, and it would boot with just the necessary hardware drivers loaded and start the game before Windows gobbled up hundreds of kilobytes. Of course, avoiding Windows still left you with DOS memory management. If you're too young to know about that, you're lucky. The original 5150 could physically address no more than a megabyte of memory. Of that, 640 kilobytes were conventional memory, allocated for programs you might want to run. That's fine, more than half, The rest was the upper memory, a no-man's-land set aside for hardware needs, graphics, and other stuff. For extra fun, several hardware expansions could try and use the same range of addresses in the upper memory, and DOS would have no objections and no checks against that until the system crashed. Then, just after the release of the 5150, memory costs plummeted, and people started trying to ram more and more RAM into the computer, and the system didn't know what to do with it. Bank switching shenanigans ensued, and now DOS could have an even worse managed extended memory area that uh, extended past the one megabyte mark without the processor being aware of it. In '84, IBM released the PC based on the much faster Intel 80286 processor. It could address sixteen megabytes of RAM but the computer had to be compatible with the original 5150, so the memory structure of DOS was retained. Well, they also added a small area at the start of extended memory, called the high memory area, which was useful for something or other. Now, I know what you may be thinking. How does this affect me, a simple person trying to play games on my PC? Here's how. You could have megabytes of RAM, Try to run a game from the early 80s, and it would refuse to run and tell you you didn't have enough memory. Because it only knew how to work with conventional memory, and in your computer it was occupied by rubbish like mouse drivers or sound card drivers or, ironically, a memory manager program. You had to either manually edit DOS configuration or create a custom boot disk so that next time the system loaded with the drivers in other memory areas. Only you'd better first create a boot disk of your current setup, since the computer clearly works, and once you reset, it might not. While PC owners are drawing memory maps and packing paper, we are going back to the Motorola 68000 and a generation of systems using it in the mid-80s. After the Mac, we shall move on to the Lorraine. As Ray Kassar was turning down proposals from Atari engineers to develop a real new generation system in the early 80s, he was getting those engineers increasingly fuming. And that included a guy Atari definitely could not afford to lose, Jay Glenn Miner, who had led the development of all the company's graphics chips. Miner's idea was to start working on a 16-bit console with the new 68000 processor right after he'd finished with the Atari 800. Yes, at the time the chip alone cost a hundred dollars, but it's not going to cost a hundred dollars forever. And Atari's not going to be leading the industry with seventies designs forever. So let's start now before we fall behind. No dice. So Jake quit. He was minding his own business when, in '82, he got a call from another guy we've run into on this series, Larry Kaplan. Larry had grown disillusioned with Activision and wanted to split and start his own game company. To help run it, they brought in a manager, David Shannon Moores. The company they founded was called Hi Toro, but investors told the team it was a silly name, so near the end of 82, the joint became known as Amiga Corporation. In 83, Larry Kaplan left the company to go rejoin Atari with impeccable timing, but the team at Amiga kept growing. Miner's former Atari colleague, Joseph Dequeer, joined. He, by the way, was responsible for naming the Atari VCS graphics system Stella, not after a girl, but after the brand of J-miner's bicycle, named after a girl, so the system still works. Another one of the people joining at this point was Dave Needle, the guy who tinkered his way into the industry in the 70s with that Star Trek cabinet. Another guy they got was someone completely new to us. Robert Joseph Michael, who graduated in computer science in '79 from the University of Illinois, where he had played airfight on Plato, and then he had worked at Williams Electronics. So this gang, plus a few other people, and J Miner's dog Mitchy, got to work on a new system they called Lorraine, after David Moore's wife. Core chips were also given girl names to make it harder for outsiders to steal trade secrets. But the team was pretty laid back. According to Miner, there were guys coming to work in purple tights and pink bunny slippers. Welcome to the 80s fashions. There were creative differences in the crew. Some, like Robert Michael, wanted to shape Lorraine into a streamlined, cheap console, while programmer Carl Sassenrath joined with the idea to develop a multitasking operating system, and that meant making Lorraine a microcomputer and picking a fight with Microsoft. Of course, in 1983, the choice between a console and a micro was made obvious when the entire video game industry dropped an anvil on itself. Amiga corporation kept working, developing software and hardware in parallel, and even though everything was half-baked, the team was able to put out an impressive tech demo for trade shows in 83. A red and white 3D ball made up of polygons that rotated and bounced around the screen, casting a shadow and making noises. The noise was the sample of one of the developers hitting the office garage door with a foam baseball bat, digitized on an Apple II. The bats were also used internally to hit people suggesting bad ideas at meetings. Trade show crowds were impressed by the ball's graphics. Dave Eye iRobot cabinet, with its polygonal action, would only come in on 84. Speaking of 84, that's the year Amiga Corporation started having severe money issues. Namely, it ran out. Desperate for more investors, Amiga struck a deal with Atari. Atari was interested in Lorraine's chipset it could use to, say, make a new console or something. So Amiga got a loan for half a million dollars with some really peculiar conditions attached to it. Amiga Corporation was given one month to either make some other deal with Atari or repay the loan. And if, when, Amiga couldn't, the rights to Lorraine's chipset went to Atari. Yeah, they were trying to score a hot new chipset on the cheap. Maybe there was a way for Amiga to wiggle out of this, but then Jack tramell bought Atari, discovered the deal, and was dead set on enforcing it. So Amiga was trapped, and Jack tramell started making noises about just buying the whole company for pennies. But he didn't care about the team, you need to pay people, he wanted the chips. Before the trap was shut though, Amiga reached out to Commodore, and Commodore swooped in, threw a check for the half a million at Atari, and bought Amiga for 25 million. Tramiel was furious, such a perfect hustle ruined, so he sued. Since the suit involved the rights to the Lorraine, all work in the project ceased until it was resolved. But a number of people from Commodore had followed the Tramels to Atari, and so Commodore accused Atari of stealing trade secrets and froze their work. Quite a Mexican standoff. By the end of the summer 84, a new arrangement was in place. Commodore got to keep Amiga, the developers, and Lorraine, while Atari also got to keep Lorraine, the license to use the existing chipset in a console or something. It was easily convertible to a micro. And so, the race was on, and a close one. In June 85, Atari announced its new 16-bit computer, the Atari 520ST, the first in the Atari ST line. In July 85, Commodore announced the Amiga 1000, the first of the Amiga line. The two systems were like identical twins, separated at birth, and brought up in different families. The Atari ST was priced at $1000 if you wanted to see colors, and you'd probably want to since the graphical system was aware of 512 of them. The computer was no PC-98 though, and its high-resolution mode had to be monochrome, while in medium-resolution mode, 640 by 200 pixels, you could only use 4 color palettes. Drop down to the more common 320 by 200 pixels, and you'd get 16 colors. The sound system was a variant of the same three-channels-plus-noise sound chip used in the Intellivision, Amstrad CPC, Fujitsu FM7, and early MSX. So, the computer offered industry-standard presentation, but with half a megabyte of memory and a 16-bit Motorola running at 8 MHz, it could do much more than the older hardware. The operating system was custom, but papered over it, you'd have a graphical interface licensed from Digital Research, Gary Kildall's outfit. On balance, the Atari ST offered excellent performance for the price, its sales were great, and helped fix Atari's long-standing money issues. Later expansions, revisions, and upgraded models made the system even more powerful, bringing more colors and high-quality sound, perfect for games, and more. Spreadsheets, sound effects and music editing, and even 3D modeling were possible here. This is the native platform of the original 3D Studio. As for the Amiga 1000, its price of $1,300 did not compare favorably to its sibling, especially with Amiga's main processor running a megahertz slower, and half as much memory included in the case. But its case had a compartment at the bottom where you could hide your keyboard? That's got to count for something. Seriously, though, if you wanted pretty graphics, Amiga truly was your friend. It had a special display mode called Ham, hold and modify, that, at the expense of finer detail, could put on the screen 4,000 colors. Ham was only good for static images like title screens or impressing crowds at trade shows, but it was there. Other than that, at the same resolutions Atari ST could offer 4 and 16 colors, Amiga had 16 and 32. And that's not all. Amiga's sound system was stereo, and instead of single frequencies, its 4 sound channels used pulse code modulation. This machine was more than perfect for games. The price was a shame, though. So in eighty-seven, Commodore split the Amiga line into the cheaper Amiga 500, a bestseller, and the boxy Amiga 2000, with lots of space for expansion cards. Some problems would remain, though, such as the operating system. Amiga's operating system was made up of two parts. The Kickstart ROM, basically a BIOS, got gradually updated over the series' lifetime, and sometimes games programmed for earlier versions would not run on later ones, which is why if you buy an Amiga emulation package today, you get a whole bunch of those ROMs just in case. On top of the Kickstart, you would load the Workbench, a graphical interface shell with multitasking. It was called Workbench to avoid trouble with companies calling the screen a desktop. Instead of folders, you had drawers. Whatever it was called, the operating system soon became notorious for how unstable it was. Even its developers were so frustrated by it, they invented a game. In its early independent days, Amiga Corporation tried to raise money by releasing a controller for the Atari 2600, the Joyboard. It was in essence a regular joystick, but housed in a balance board, and you were supposed to stand on it and shift your weight around as input. Only one game was released for the gadget, Mogul Maniac, a first-person skiing simulator visually similar to Atari's Night Rider. A few years later, constant Amiga crashes were driving Robert Michael up the wall, and to relax he came up with the Zen Meditation game. You were supposed to sit cross-legged on the joyboard, motionless, contemplating the futility of it all in the company's centered offices. The better you zoned out, the more points you got. And his pastime took off. Then they needed some text for an error message on System Crash, and someone typed in Guru Meditation. While Amigas did not ship with the Joyboard, many lucky buyers of the system got to contemplate the message on their screens. This computer could make you cry. Even though the Amiga Corporation had been saved from the clutches of Atari, the stuffy corporate management at Commodore was killing the team's vibe in ways no meditation could fix. They started leaving already in '86 and settling in other companies. Carl Sassenrath briefly joined Apple. David Morse, Dave Needle, and RJ Michael wound up together at Epix, the company formerly known as Automated Simulations, where they developed a handheld console with a color liquid crystal display, and in the end it was released by Atari, as the Atari Lynx. Then the same three guys founded a company to develop a new 32-bit home console, and that one was launched by Trip Hawkins's early 90s venture, The 3DO Company, as the 3DO Interactive Multiplayer. So we'll be running into them again and again. The game libraries of both the Atari ST and the Amiga had a noticeable element in them, what today would be called HD remakes or remasters. Older or not much older 8-bit titles converted to 16-bit. It was more than just reprogramming. Graphics had to be redone to improve palettes and animation. Sound and music had to be replaced or added. The interface was often given mouse support. And not just 8-bit games got this treatment. IBM PC releases often looked even worse and needed even more work. Thing is, these upgraded ports required a lot of new skills and larger staff, so many were outsourced. And one of the companies that got itself on solid footing doing exactly this kind of work before releasing something original was Westwood Studios, founded in 85 by Brett Sperry and Louis Castle. Westwood would create a few all-time classics in the 90s, but what put Brett on its developers' tables in the late 80s was taking Cyan and Magenta DOS games and making them good enough for the Amiga. Before we leave the 68,000 generation, There's one more system to take into account. In 1986, in Japan, Sharp announced the X68000. And starting Spring 87, you could even buy it for two and a half, three thousand dollars 3000 dollars Wait, don't go. The money got you a slightly faster M68000 at 10MHz and a full megabyte of memory right out of the box, plus a megabyte of video memory. And a power switch? You've never seen anything like it. You press a button, and instead of breaking a circuit physically, it sent a signal to a unit which powered everything up and down gradually. How cool is that? Also, you got a single-channel PCM sound chip for samples, and an 8-channel synthesizer chip from Yamaha that had already become an industry standard in the arcades. As for the graphics, the X68K was breaking into four-digit resolution, 1024 by 1024 pixels. Admittedly, in this mode you could only have 16 colors, but if you turn the resolution down a notch to 512 by 512 pixels, you would get 16-bit color. That's up to 65,000 colors on the screen at the same time. Yes, there were enough pixels for all of them, but just barely, four per color. If you didn't need that, for some reason, you could take advantage of another thing the hardware supported. Layers. You could compose the image on the screen out of several bitmap layers, and they could be scrolled smoothly and independently. And have I mentioned hardware sprite support? The Atari ST did not have any hardware sprite support, it did it all in software. The Amiga could handle eight sprites while the Sharp X68K could have a separate layer for up to 128 sprites, up to 32 on the same line. And on top of that, the system supported active shutter glasses for playing games in stereoscopic 3D. You might be getting the impression that this hardware was designed specifically for games. And you'd be right, because it was co-developed by Sharp and Hudson Soft, and this is happening just around the time Hudson Soft helped NEC get its PC engine revved up. Hudson also wrote the operating system for the X68K, mimicking both MS-DOS and Windows. But most of the system's power had to be channeled into games. To drive the point home that this was an elite gaming rig, the original version of the Sharp X68000 even came bundled with the port of Gradius, a 1985 arcade hit from Konami, ideal to show off the sprite count and the scrolling layers. The computer could take it, it was better than many arcade systems, Lorraine's offspring from Atari and Commodore and the Mac. The X68K was expensive, but you could use it for work too. It also had a high-resolution text mode with kanji support. So it's a real high-tech monster of a system with hundreds of games, including exclusives. But sadly, the Sharp X68000 line was never released outside of Japan. Now, obviously, there were more 16-bit systems out there, lesser known. But we've got bigger fish to fry today. In the autumn of 1985, Intel announced a new 32-bit processor, the 8386, and everyone held their breath for IBM to announce something with the new chip. And then IBM didn't announce anything. Unlike the more chaotic Japanese companies, IBM was a massive centralized corporation with many tiers of customers, each offered their own range of hardware, and it was all calculated And the management felt that a microcomputer with a 386 would be too powerful and would compete with IBM's own mini-computers sold to businesses with far better profit margins than the micros for the plebs. And so IBM chose not to use the 386. Guess who didn't care about IBM's profit margins? That's right, everybody else. And leading the charge was, as always, Compaq. About a year after the new processor's announcement, once it became available, Compaq announced its DeskPro 386. It had a 16MHz 386 inside, lightning fast, a megabyte of memory, and a 40MB hard disk drive, which was still not quite a standard element of micros, the original X68K didn't have one. The Compaq DeskPro 386 cost a mere $6500. Okay, 6499 that should make it better, right? Oh, and that didn't even include a display. Or a video card. That'll be another 1500 No one bought this computer for games. I don't think many bought it in general. But Compaq started rubbing the desk pro in IBM's face, advertising how it could be used to run all the old DOS software and also good enough to serve as a Unix workstation for all your business needs. IBM clone manufacturers suddenly realized that if they wanted to follow the trends, they had to clone Compaq, not IBM. Meanwhile at IBM, the management decided to initiate work on a new micro with a 386 after all, because losing a few business customers appeared better than losing all of them. The development was rushed, and the system, dubbed Personal System Slash 2, or PS Slash 2, was announced already in the spring of 87. It had the new processor, it could run all DOS software, and could be turned into a workstation. The crisis could have been averted had IBM not made another one of its greed-driven mistakes. The company engineers correctly identified a bottleneck in the original 5150 design. Its expansion card interface was too slow, even after the upgrade it got with the launch of the pc AT many had thought to improve the pc with better video or sound cards but any high performance hardware would be dead weight if it couldn't exchange data fast enough well the ps2 came with a new expansion interface the micro channel while fast and easy to use just what everyone wanted it was not compatible with the older standards and it was closed source and proprietary If you wanted to make a PS2 clone or an expansion card, you had to go to IBM and get a license and pay royalties of each unit. Finally, IBM would make everyone respect it again. Faced with the need to replace key hardware standards, some third-party manufacturers agreed to play ball, and the PS2 did get its clones and expansions. Most, however, felt that IBM's offer was not worth it. If you have to change everything, you might as well come up with with your own standard instead of paying IBM. And so Compaq, of course, and eight other companies got together and proposed an open standard free for the industry to use. A few years later, it would be updated, maintained by a non-profit organization, and then again, and that has evolved into the modern PC. The reaction to the PS2 launch was the point when IBM lost even the most loose control it had over supposedly its personal computer. In the 90s, the PC would be all about Wintel, Intel processors, and Microsoft Windows. That's not to say the PS2 was an immediate failure in the 80s. It did okay for a short while in the business circles, then unsold units began piling up, and in the early 90s, IBM had to resume making the PC no longer as the leader, but as one of the many. And that's where IBM got again hoisted by its own petard. All through the 80s, it had been running the Fear, Uncertainty and Doubt campaign, with its marketing people pointing out to potential buyers that PC clones from small unknown companies used third-party biases and weren't exactly like the IBM originals. And that could make some of your software fail after an update in the future. We don't know how, but it could. It totally could. You gotta buy IBM to safeguard your business. In the early 90s, there were so many third-party IBM-compatible parts and peripherals out there that the PR started having the opposite effect. People avoided IBM specifically because they thought it worked differently. To save themselves from being completely left behind by the growing power of Intel and Microsoft, in 1991, Apple, IBM and Motorola formed an alliance to launch a new open standard of personal computers. The major effect of this was the introduction of a new processor architecture, PowerPC, which Apple would keep using in its computers for the following 15 years. PowerPC processors also show up in at least six game consoles. Nintendo's GameCube, Wii, and Wii U, Sony's PlayStation 3, Microsoft's Xbox 360, and Apple's Pippin. The PS2 itself has left quite a legacy too. The least noticeable is its operating system, the OS 2. Half an operating system is an app descriptor, since a half-baked version of it shipped with the first PS2s. But its developers at IBM and Microsoft, and then just at IBM when Microsoft split, were able to turn it into something functional, and you could still stumble into it in the wild as late as 2010 running on ATMs. More prominent were the hardware editions. The PS2 introduced the ultimate high-density form of the 3.5-inch floppy disk, capable of storing 1.44 megabytes. It was widely adopted and used for software and game distribution until the late 90s. Then there was the PS2 connector you might still find on the back of desktop PCs. It's these small, round-colored ports for plugging in older keyboards and mice. This also means that mouse controls and mouse-driven interface were finally becoming the norm for DOS games in the late 80s, and not a luxury option. That's nice, Amiga users would stop laughing, and the VGA display connector of the PS2 became the standard for most computer displays in the 90s. The most visible novelty was the introduction of the VGA itself, Video Graphics Array, with a new range of output modes. 16 colors at 640x480 pixels, and 256 colors at 320x200 pixels. The wide adoption of the VGA standard by third-party video card manufacturers is when DOS games finally stopped looking like utter crap without display artifacts or extremely talented art direction. The Amiga was still better, though. A number of classic early 90s DOS games like Cannon Fodder and Worms were actually ports from the Amiga, and if you look at their original versions, you'll see them clearly running in a higher resolution. But PC video cards developed by many competing companies kept improving, and even the most advanced Amiga chipset, AGA, fell behind, and soon after Commodore went bankrupt. You may have noticed we haven't set foot in the UK so far in this episode. The British had the worst luck moving on from 8-bit. In eighty-four, Sinclair tried to launch its own Motorola 68000-based system, the QL, Quantum Leap. In physics, a quantum leap doesn't exactly cover a great distance, and the computer reflected that. Cheapskate to the end, Sinclair picked the version of the processor that used 8-bit channel for passing data in and out, so it did little good. The QL was discontinued shortly due to a lack of sales. One of the few people foolish enough to buy one of these was a Linus Torvalds over in Finland, and the total lack of support for the computer in the late 80s was one of the factors that tipped him over the edge to start developing the Linux operating system. As for Amstrad, let's put it like this. It released a word processor computer based on a 16MHz Zilog Z80, so 8-bit, in 1995. This PCW was fairly cheap, always a plus in the British market, had a custom graphical interface, but no multitasking. The nicest feature was that all of its system software was stored on a flash memory unit, so when you turned it on, the computer booted up almost instantly. Now, ACORN, that's a different story. ACORN did not release a 16-bit system because it decided to skip a step. After the BBC Micro, Sophia Wilson and Steve Ferber got to work on a new 32-bit processor in 83, a brand new architecture using the latest advances. The result was called ARM, ACORN Risk Machine where RISC itself stood for Reduced Instruction Set Computer. The earliest simulator of the chip, showing that it could and would work as designed, ran on a BBC Micro and was programmed by Ferber in BBC Basic. The first people outside the company who got to check out the new chip were the BEEB users who, for a few thousand pounds, received an expansion module with the arm inside. They plugged it into the tube and vroom, their tiny 8-bit computer was under a new management. This is what the design of the BBC Micro was all about. The first computer built around the new processor was the Acorn Archimedes, launched in 1987 in several variants ranging in price from below a thousand to a few thousand pounds. The ARM outperformed the 386, so the Archimedes could offer a lot if you wanted to do some work, in particular with graphics. It had some compatibility with the older Acorn computers too, and realizing what was becoming the industry standard, soon after the release, the Archimedes was even given support of VGA display modes and a software PC emulator allowing it to run early 80s DOS software. None of this helped the Archimedes to achieve worldwide success. It sold in the UK as it was very fast for the price, But I'm not sure Acorn ever managed to shift even a million units. The Archimedes did play one role in games precisely because it was so rare. In the early 90s, one Graham Nelson got frustrated that he couldn't play his favorite interactive fiction games on the system because there were no ports. So Graham reverse-engineered Infocom's interpreter and, as a side effect, created tools for making your own games using the same scripting language. Then he made one, Curses, released it on a BBS, and it triggered a revival of interactive fiction in non-commercial form. Another legacy of Acorn's efforts is the ARM processor architecture. It was very promising, so in 1990, Acorn, its American chip manufacturing partner, and Apple, again, founded Advanced Risk Machines Limited. The new company would develop the ARM and license the technology out. One of the first instances of ARM being used in a gaming machine is the 3DO Interactive Multiplayer Console, developed by David Morris, Dave Needle and RJ Michael for Trip Hawkins' 3DO company. And then they would announce an expansion for the 3DO using a PowerPC processor, which mutated into a separate console, the M2, they sold to Matsushita also known as Panasonic. Then the M2 got cancelled and the 3DO was discontinued. But ARM had greater prospects ahead of it. The architecture turned out to be energy-efficient, well-suited for portable, battery-operated electronics, and thanks to separation of ARM from Acorn, these chips kept developing even when Acorn had gone out of business. ARM processors started showing up in electronic organizers, music players and other gadgets, that were wiped out with the arrival of tablet computers and smartphones, which themselves have arms inside. Whether a smartphone is running the Android operating system, based on Linux, by the way, thanks Sinclair, or whether a smartphone comes from Apple, chances are extremely high its heart is an ARM processor, and the BBC Micro is its great-grandma. Going back to Apple, though, the early 90s alliances it struck to save itself from Wintel proved pretty helpful in the long run. But they were not arranged by Steve Jobs. After the dismal failure of the Lisa and the subpar sales of the Macintosh that nearly killed Apple, Steve developed a justified reputation for turning everything he touched into crap. So, internal pressures squeezed Jobs out of Apple in 85. That's when he founded an even less gaming-oriented company called Next, where Steve established the policy of publicly taking credit for the best ideas of his engineers and presenting those engineers themselves as those who had argued with him and he had to convince them that the ideas were good. Somehow, this scheme fixed his reputation enough for Apple to buy Next and him back in 97. Finally, let's have one last flyover of Japan. Its market was stabilizing. NEC was not doing much new in the late 80s. Its PC-98 was still leading in sales. Updated PC-88s were selling great too. Why would NEC change anything? Well, it introduced a new PC-98 with Intel 386 inside to keep up with the times, but not much else was needed. At the same time, Fujitsu's market share was shrinking, and the company decided to take it back in style. In 1989, it introduced the FM Towns computer. It also used the 386, its graphical capabilities were comparable to the Sharp X68K, and for sound, it had a Ricoh chip with 8 PCM channels. That was nice, but what makes the FM Towns stand out is that it had a built-in CD-ROM drive. You could get those drives as expansions and peripherals for other systems too. But here it was integral to the design, meaning game developers could rely on it and take full advantage of the new storage medium. This sneak peek at the 90s computers did not sell as well as Fujitsu had hoped, but the company did repackage it in 1993 into the FM Town's Marty console. And on this I think we'll finish the hardware overview, but that doesn't mean we're done with it for good. Eventually, we'll look into the Vectrex from Smith Engineering, catch up on the emergence of virtual reality, new commercial networks, and, of course, the 80s were the time when someone thought to develop a console controlled exclusively through voice. But the big picture is here, and as you may have realized over the past three episodes, this picture is high contrast. The arcades are undergoing industry-wide standardization, because standing together is better than dying alone. The console market is rebuilding after the crash, with previously minor players, Nintendo and Sega, emerging as the leaders. And microcomputers are... a mess. There's certainly a lot of them about, and they use several different processor architectures, in addition to custom chips and operating systems. To the great dismay of game studios, the micros were both the cheapest and the most open platform to develop for, so they had to learn to love this mess, and this is the environment in which many would-be stars of the 90s started filling their portfolios. And naturally, this is where interesting crap games could thrive. But where shall we go from here? Well, some may already be yelling at me that I've omitted one IBM system from the mid-80s with which the corporation was trying to get into schools. That system is a great off-ramp towards interesting crap games because its marketing campaign involved handling a big pile of money to Ken and Roberta Williams. Next time, Sir Graham sets off on his trailblazing adventure and finds his path very crowded. This has been Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening, thanks to LEGOFan94 for covering the hosting, and as always, support good causes.